Welcome to another episode of Goldwater Scholar Highlights, where we interview notable Goldwater scholars and honorable mentions on their educational backgrounds, their current research, and their careers. For anyone who's tuning in, this is a fantastic way to learn from the science and career experiences of others in the Goldwater Scholar community. You can keep up with us through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter, and you can keep up with this podcast show through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and now Spotify. All right, now the guest that we have on today studied chemistry and sociology at the Virginia Commonwealth University. He earned his medical degree at the Harvard Medical School and completed his residency at Harvard's Combined Orthopedic Residency Program, where he served a year as chief resident. He is currently serving as a clinical fellow in spinal surgery at the Vancouver General Hospital and the University of British Columbia. This is Mohamed Kareem. All right, so thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, really an honor to be recognized in this format. Um, I think as the as you and the other members of the Goldwater Scholars Council had recognized uh, their Goldwater Scholarship is something that uh, I and I think every other person who's won it has really put a lot of effort and thought into it back in the time when they were in college. And um, then you win it and you feel great and you don't really think too much about it again. And that was certainly the case for me as well. I mean, it's been a decade, over a decade now, and I hadn't really thought much about it. And uh, it, I think it's a great opportunity to harness sort of the experience of uh, those of us who have been down this pathway to share our stories and serve as a resource for other folks who may be interested in either connecting or just learning about the different pathways people can take, uh, people who are already so accomplished to win this scholarship. So uh, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate the recognition that you and the entire council have uh, shown by having me. So I really appreciate it. Uh, my background, I think you summarized very nicely. Uh, you know, I attended college at VCU in Richmond, Virginia. I grew up just a little bit north of there in uh, Maryland, uh, sort of the Rockville, Maryland area, just about a few miles outside of Washington, D.C. So that was my home. That's where I grew up. And then I went to college down south in Richmond, spent uh, four years there, loved it. Uh, decided along the way I really wanted to be a physician, much more so than a basic scientist. And so I went to medical school. There I fell in love with surgery, uh, specifically bone surgery. So here I am as a bone doctor now. And uh, my specific interests are in uh, musculoskeletal oncology, actually. So I'm studying a spine surgery currently, and then I'll be headed to the Mayo Clinic next year to specifically subtrain and bone and soft tissue tumors and hopefully have a career taking care of patients with uh, tumors that affect the musculoskeletal system as a whole. So that's me. Uh, academically, that's the stuff people want to know, but I'm happy to talk about uh, and whatever else, other detail would be helpful uh, for everyone. Very cool. Um, I mean, I'm, I really want to dive into your medical career, but uh, first I want to talk about your edu undergraduate education and some of the experiences you had there. Um, can you talk about how you kind of veered from basic science into uh, medicine? Sure. So I uh, had the privilege of growing up outside the D.C. area, as I said. And so one of the uh, things that us science-minded high school students in that area, I remember doing is like, let's do a summer internship at the NIH. That's like a thing. And, you know, I was very proud of like, you know, applying and like getting picked and 
It was awesome. And so I ended up in this uh, lab of a guy named Theodore Colabo. I was an older gentleman at the time. He had uh, played a critical role in the development of ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. But he shifted his research in later years to basically ventilator-associated pneumonia and methods of preventing that. So anyways, I ended up in his lab as like a 14-year-old high school student. Uh, and he, his lab uh, involved large animal research. So he would take uh, sheep, he would anesthetize them and uh, put them on ventilators for a week at a time and then uh, play with their, you know, ventilatory settings, et cetera, and basically try to come up with ways to prevent pneumonia. So for me, that experience was just absolutely fundamental because it was the first time that I got to see uh, large animal translational clinical research. And I didn't really think of it that way at the time. I certainly didn't have to know that it had a name like that. For me, it was just a sheep and there were cool things being done with tubes and surgery and autopsies. And I saw lungs and organs and ribs. And I said, this is awesome. This is this is like the science that we learn in school, but really like applied to like a problem and like a being. And it was it was very fundamental for me. So that really so that back and forth with the back and forth with working with a a, a patient sample and then also yeah. thinking about the science meanwhile really attracted you. It really was. I mean, he here he was in his lab working on like ways to modify the tube. Should I coat it with silver? Should I add a little suction thing at the end so the mucus gets sucked out of it? Should I, and he had all these little things he was working and tinkering wow. on his lab and then bringing that stuff to the sheep and putting it in and then doing that for a few days and then doing an autopsy to look at the lungs. I mean, it was a very complete picture of like a problem with solutions he was working on with his hands and then seeing the results of it. It was very cool. And, you know, something that I reflect back on now is that that was an incredibly unique, valuable, and rare experience that I had the privilege of getting to be a small part of at like a really early age of my life, but it was really meaningful. And if I think back to it, that's probably what made me really want to be a surgeon, actually, is seeing the gross anatomy and really uh, getting involved in that level of detail with patients. So uh, that's what sort of turned me on to science and sort of the career potential of medicine and surgery. Um, and then I went to college and, you know, uh, like most people I had all these ideas, should I be a basic scientist? Should I be a doctor? Should I be a social scientist, should I, you know, be a chef, you know, I, all these different things were floating around in my head. And um, like you said, how did I veer from sort of thinking about being a basic scientist to being a clinical person? Uh, so I think uh, that background was that I had thought about being a clinical person from very, very early on, um, from the experience at the NIH. Um, but then all of your classes in college are very much basic science, right? And then your mm -hmm. mentors are basic scientists and the people that you spend all of your time around, you get involved really easily. I was a chemistry major, start talking to my professors, you know, they start like, oh, are you interested in this? Like, sure. And then you start, you know, pipetting a lab and all of a sudden you walk down this very basic science-y type pathway and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, but in parallel with that, I, uh, I spent a lot of time also uh, around physicians at VCU as well. And there was one in particular uh, who was a nephrologist, uh, kidney doctor, uh, who I would spend probably a day or two a week in the dialysis center with her, uh, rounding on patients essentially while they were getting dialysis. And, you know, dialysis patients have very complex physiology, they're very sick. Um, and, you know, I remember sort of taking a physiology class in college at the time of when I was spending a lot of time with her. And it was very cool to like have a sense of like, okay, I know about blood vessels and like smooth muscle, all these things that we learn about. And it's nice to now sort of see a patient with hypertension in the dialysis mm -hmm. and be like, oh, okay, this thing that I learned about calcium channels, you can give a blocker and the other blood pressure goes down. And 
So that's making the, the, making, yeah, making the was, textbook come alive a little bit. Yeah, it was very like it was real world, real world applicable, not just like an answer on an exam that I would write. And then, you know, much more so than that, it was uh, these people. So I grew up sort of in an upper middle class background in suburban Washington, Maryland. Um, and here I was in Richmond, Virginia, which is really, you know, uh, a lot of patients who didn't have the privileges that I grew up with. And these are people, you know, in really bad clinical and health circumstances. I mean, they're on dialysis. They're really not doing well. Um, and it was humbling to meet these people. There are 20 of them, and I saw them pretty much every single week, twice a week. And not just the medical aspects of it, but the social aspects of it were very important to me. I saw the way this sort of this particular nephrologist made a good connection with these people. And it wasn't just so much about prescribing the right medications. It was about helping them realize what their disease process was. You know, when they spend a weekend uh, binge eating whatever it is that they like or going to a birthday party, whatever it is, you know, doing what is important to them, mm -hmm. they fluid overload themselves. And that's really dangerous for their bodies as people who don't have functioning kidneys. And then they see the effects of that on Monday morning when they show up for dialysis and they're short of breath and their legs are puffy. And then all of a sudden we've got to explain to them again why the choices that they make play such a profound role in sort of their the what they feel on a daily basis. And the way she was able to sort of try to relate to those patients' circumstances to help them change some of the decisions they may make to treat their underlying physiology was really, really satisfying. It was a combination of taking not just the basic science part of it, but also just the humanistic aspect of getting to know somebody as a person and seeing how you can affect their lives. So those sorts of little experiences compounded for me. And I said, I really like the lab stuff. I really enjoy pipetting and doing basic science experiments and understanding the underpinnings of how the body works. But it was the the social interaction, the one-on-one, -on -one, I was like, this, this is really important to me. And I really want to have that be a part of my life. So. That's probably, those are probably the major experiences that shifted me away from being a true full-time scientist uh, to being more so of a clinician. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of a little snippet, I guess, of my thinking as an 18 to 22-year-old college student. So can you talk about, um, can you talk a little bit about medical school and maybe if you got to explore uh, the science you were interested and in, maybe get some experience with bedside manner? Oh, sure. So medical school was great. Medical school was by far the most fun time of my life. It really was a ton of fun. Harvard was a great place. Uh, very, very talented people from, they're just awesome. The classmates were great. And in terms of like the actual science and the medicine of it, one of the wonderful things about HMS is that it was a very low stress environment. You take a lot of people who are very just independently, fundamentally motivated to just learn medicine and then give them no reason to be stressed out about it. I mean, I all the classes were pass fail. And they really encouraged us to just do whatever it is that we wanted. You know, no classes were mandatory. I mean, there were like discussions and stuff, but it really let you be who you wanted to be. And so for me, early on, uh, I had a couple of ideas. I thought surgery is really interesting to me. I really want to want to be around surgeons and like see gross anatomy and stuff like that. So I had the freedom to be like, hey, I'm not going to go to this class on Monday. I'm going to go to Mass General Hospital and shadow a neurosurgeon and see what that means to resect a brain tumor. And those sorts of little fundamental experiences were important to me because I saw the anatomy in like the cadaver lab and I went and like mm -hmm. saw surgery and those little experiences early on were like, yeah, I think I really like this. I'm not sure, but I think I really like this idea of doing something with my hands. And then, you know, I had done a lot of research uh, as a completely different aspect in like, uh, at the NIH was cardiac MRI when I was in college. I was really interested in that for some odd reason, just magnetic resonance and like sort of imaging physics. So 
then I, in parallel, was doing a lot of research like on imaging type stuff, uh, specifically in the heart. So I was entertaining these two separate pathways in my head in medical school. Do I want to be a surgeon or do I kind of want to be this uh, imaging scientist kind of person? And uh, again, it kind of went, came back to the same thing that it was in college. It was very much I really wanted the, the patient experience, the patient interaction. And so that really led me towards surgery um, uh, again. And so I think that's sort of a little again about how I went down that pathway. Very cool. Very cool. Do you have any advice for our scholars who might be torn between science and medicine? Yeah, I mean, I think that I certainly felt that way in uh, college. Um, I would say that very strongly, again, you're the people who write your letters of recommendation, your mentors, all those kinds of people are typically, at least for me, they were basic scientists who ran labs and such. And I wouldn't say they were disappointed to see me go to medical school, but they certainly had I guess their own ideas about what they would ideally want me to do, uh, you know, at least maybe think about getting an MD, PhD, or integrate mm -hmm. basic science into my life somehow. So you're right. Uh, it, sometimes it can feel like, at least for me, it felt like I, I think I'm supposed to walk down this pathway of going to graduate school and being a basic scientist. But I knew that what made me happy at the end of the day was comparing and contrasting these experiences. Like when it's Mm -hmm. When I'm doing an experiment late night in the lab, I remember I used to go to the lab, you know, late at night or like on weekends to do experiments. And then I would also think about like, how did I feel doing that? Like I enjoyed the intellectual pursuit, but it was a little bit lonely for me. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I would, you know, think about the times I was around patients, whether it be in the emergency ward or like at that dialysis clinic. And I was like, that's kind of like an inherently more social environment for me. I just, I like that more. And I realized that it didn't have to be one or the other. I might not be like the basic scientist who was running a lab, but that didn't mean I couldn't still understand basic science and collaborate with scientists and have a really rigorous understanding of scientific underpinnings of clinical disease. And so I thought what made me happy at the end of the day was being around people and patients. And uh, it led me towards really wanting to be a clinical physician rather than a basic scientist. Um, which I think is a thing. And I think that the other thing that people struggle with a lot is do I get an MD, PhD, or do I go to medical school? Big struggle for people uh, with a lot of information. I, I can talk about that if you'd like. Or Yeah, I mean, so so one of the um, one of the dilemmas a lot of my undergraduate friends had yeah. was, you know, choosing between an MD, PhD, mm -hmm. or just getting the MD. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the advice that I actually heard was uh, just go for the MD. You can always do research with that and come back in some sort of way, but it's mm -hmm. really hard to do both in your in, in for the rest of your career. Yeah. Do, you, do you agree with that, or? I think I in, in the it's in the in very broad strokes. Yes, I do agree with that. In very broad strokes, um, you know, I've seen both sides of it. My my best friend in medical school was an MD PhD, a rigorous basic scientist. You know, it's funny, I finished residency, he finished medical school, we started at the same time. So there's that time aspect of it, but it was nice because I got to see him evolve into like a real scientist. Um, and, I got, and he got to see me evolve into a surgeon, uh, having both started in the same place. So we had like a nice compare and contrast of our lives there. Um, so I had the experience of being around MD, PhDs, both like at the student level, but then also like as attendings. And then I, in my own sort of like, my mentors who influenced me to go to medical school, like, and I worked at the NIH and had a lot of mentors there. And these were all, you know, really top researchers, uh, you know, principal investigators at the NIH, tenured investigators, and they all had MDs, not all, but many of them were MDs. You know, a lot of them were cardiologists, in fact. They were clinical cardiologists who chose a career in research. 
And that's when I sort of said to myself, okay, I think I sort of agree with what you're saying is I think I can be, if I really want to be a rigorous scientist, I can go to medical school, differentiate myself down a clinical pathway and then choose to do science as an important part of my career, science and research, um, without necessarily having to get a PhD. So I think that that's uh, what led me towards getting a PhD. I was not getting a PhD, sorry, and uh, sticking with just going to medical school. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's that's just something that has always interested me. That that question, and I see people, I see a lot of undergrads str- struggle with that question. Yeah, they do, and then there's a financial factor too. There's no doubt about that. People start to play that and do it. Well, if I get an MD, PhD, I get to go to medical school for free. That may be true, uh, and that that certain, and that it, that is true. But it's, uh, you know, it's a long time as well. It's typically four or five years of your life, at least three, sometimes up to five, you know, years of your life, in addition that you're. Uh, spending and you really want to make sure it's something that you want to do because although the, oppor- the, the opportunity cost of time is no small thing either um, and you know you can look at studies sort of comparing attending salary and you can say well is the few hundred a couple hundred thousand I may have saved worth it in the long run you know am I going to be making that up you know at the end of the day I think you, need to, you want I think students should definitely pick based on what their perceived interests are in life do I truly see myself being a basic scientist running a lab writing grants that kind of stuff, or do I see myself being a clinician who will be doing primarily clinical research? Mm-hmm. And and that, I think, is probably the better way of thinking about it rather than the financial aspects of it. But mm-hmm. I think it's very hard to know that at the age of 20, 21, 22, where you see your life. So uh, I think either path that you go down, I think people should be confident that you're not limiting yourself in any significant way by going down one path or the other. I have a lot of colleagues who felt they got MDs and then they went to residency and somehow they worked a PhD into residency. They took the wow. three or four years later. I mean, they didn't do it completely during residency. They needed to take three or four years. But at some point they decided, hey, I'm a surgeon, but I'm really interested in this basic science problem and I think I need a PhD to really delve into it enough to have that in my career. Mm-hmm. So then they, they had, that's when they veered away. It was in a little different type of their a little different time in their career. So I don't think that by picking one pathway or the other, you're necessarily closing doors. I also had MD PhD friends who became surgeons and do mm-hmm. zero basic science research at all, zero research at all. And that's okay too. So um, you know, I think it's it's a lot of pressure to try to make your life one way or the other at an age where you really probably don't have enough experience to know um, what your life may end up looking like. So I, I think that's a great way of, of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, so can you can you describe your life during residency? Was it was it crazy? Was it how was that experience? Yeah, you know, uh, it, 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 we hear all these stories. I grew up in a family of doctors, um, and so I had my own ideas of what residency might look like from older cousins, parents, uncles, things like that. Just life in a hospital, reading books like The House of God, which is a classic <laughs> read for people going to medical school and residency. But you just live in the hospital and you work. 100, 120 hours a week and things like that. And that may have been the case, but I think we're firmly in a generation now of much, much, much more humane treatment of residents. You know, <laughs> even as a surgical resident, uh, you know, in a field of orthopedics where people think like you really have a very tough time in residency. I mean, yeah, you work very hard, uh, but you know, these the, the, the insane work hours have probably abated quite a bit. There are, we've implemented things like, you know, night floats where you just take turns being called at night rather than working for 36, 48 hours at once. And uh, there's a lot more awareness of things like 
uh, overall resident well-being, even uh, attending well-being, uh, burnout from working excessively. So there's a lot more awareness of this kind of stuff, mental wellness uh, these days. So yeah, residencies, there's no doubt about it. It's a hard experience. Uh, your hours are, you don't have a lot of control of your life. You're sort of told when you're going to work, when you're not going to work. You don't have the freedom of going home for every holiday. or So your life is very dictated for you for a few years. And so it's really important that you end up picking a field that you really want to delve into in that amount of uh, dedication for a few years. And, you know, for us and for my residency in particular, we were, you know, all of us who pick surgery really want to do surgery. That's all we want to do. We want to operate. And so uh, it's funny, we were, we had a residency where you probably spent a lot of time early on in patient care, maybe a little bit less time in the operating room. Uh, but then the, the reward of that is that you really got to spend a lot of time in your last couple of years, certainly your last two years, even the last three years, uh, really in surgery a lot because you knew that you had very strong, more junior residents taking care of patients on the floor. And you knew how to take care of them. You knew how to lead those more junior residents because you took care of them on the floor mm-hmm. full time for a year or so. And so it was uh, it was really nice to see how you transitioned from being the person taking care of patients on the floor before and after surgery to then the person seeing them in the emergency department with their injuries and figuring out what kind of procedure they may need to then later on essentially of spending your full time, full day doing surgery on people and helping them out in that way. And so it was a nice transformation. It was a nice sort of like reward structure along the way. So mm-hmm. residency, I would say in many ways, I wouldn't say that it got easier, but it got a little bit more fulfilling as the years went on. And uh, so, yeah, I know I, I really enjoyed it. I think most people reflect back on it and say this was a really nice experience. That might not have been the case a couple of decades ago. Uh, but certainly, I think all of my co-residents really liked it, you know, but it is, we all like what we did. So uh, it's tough, but it's uh, it's certainly uh, very fun as well. Yeah, if the, if the profession demands it, what are you going to do? Exactly right. Exactly right. So can you talk a little bit about moving from Boston to Vancouver? And uh, why did you choose um, this? To, why, why did you choose uh, <laughs> Vancouver after <laughs> after your residency? Yeah, it's very unique. You know, not a lot of uh, physicians in the U.S. go elsewhere to train, uh, which is sort of an American-centric view of the world, that we have the best healthcare systems. And, you know, we do. We should be proud of having good healthcare. But that doesn't mean we exclusively have good healthcare, good healthcare training. And so, you know, I sort of am interested in a very unique niche, which is uh, musculoskeletal oncology, and even within that more specifically, uh, spine tumor surgery. So primary tumors of the spine are very exceedingly rare. Uh, They're treated, they should only be treated at highly specialized centers with a lot of experience taking care of those kinds of tumors. They're very, very rare. Uh, So as a result, it's it's a pretty small community of people who take care of them worldwide. And I had the good experience of in Boston having two mentors who uh, had similar interests to me, taking care of tumors of the spine. And uh, they were part of the international community. And they turned to me and they said, if that's really what you want to do, you know, probably one of the best places in the world to train in that is Vancouver. And I said, really? I had no idea. And they said, yeah, uh, these folks in Vancouver, uh, they take care of a lot of them. And not only do they take care of a lot of them, but they're really international leaders in the research, the clinical research, the basic science research uh, in this area as well. So I said, okay. Uh, in addition to that, they, uh, they they take care of a lot of spine pathology in general. There's more spinal cord injuries in Vancouver than probably anywhere else in North America. And they also just have, uh, take care of a lot of patients with spine pathology in general. 
Uh, part of it is just the nature of the Canadian healthcare system is that it's much more referral based. If you've got a spine issue, uh, you can't, you're not going to end up at any random clinic throughout the country or the province. Most people get referred to a specialty center, and that specialty center in Western Canada is uh, Vancouver General Hospital. So I went and met with these folks uh, back when I was a fourth year resident, so nearly two years ago. And um, that's about the time when people are applying for fellowships. And I was really taken aback by just uh, their system here is incredible. They dedicate their entire practice and lives to the care of patients with spine pathology, spinal cord injuries, spinal tumors, degenerative spine issues, spinal deformities. There's eight attending staff here that that's their whole lives. And wow. they, uh, it's really quite an incredible system they have. So for my interests, which were in spine tumor, but also just for overall breadth of training in spine surgery, uh, I couldn't think of a better place to train. And so the moment that I sort of opened up my eyes outside of what might be available in the U.S. to what opportunities might be available in the rest of the world, um, I said, this is really a very unique experience. And I signed up for it. And I said, so here I am now, uh, almost two years later, uh, the, uh, reaping the benefits of that exploration. So I'm really thankful to sort of my mentors back at Harvard for opening my eyes up to thinking outside of this U.S.-centric view of what might be the best medical training options. And uh, so here I am. Yeah, that's great to hear it was such a great fit. Yeah. Uh, how did you end up, uh, how did you end up happening to be at Vancouver Hospital? Was there a, a conference or something like that? Oh yeah, no, so the, the fellowship application process for uh, orthopedic residents, and really for most residents I think in the US is, uh, not too dissimilar for every other application process. You you look up things on, you look up programs you're interested in online, you fill out some forms, you submit them, you wait for interviews, you go on interviews. It's the same rinse and repeat cycle that you go through for every stage of training. I mean, it's a much, it's, it's a lot different in that it's a much smaller world now. Um, so the process is much more intimate and less focused on paper and much more focused on who the person is. Uh, so in any case, so I started my fourth year of residency saying, well, I really wanna be a spine surgeon. Uh, with a specific interest in tumors. So let me talk to my mentors and say, where are the places I should go to, um, pursue, that, to pursue that interest? And they recommended, you know, Vancouver and some other places. So I, you know, submitted my applications and uh, the Vancouver folks, I spoke to them. They said, yeah, come spend a few days with us and meet with us. And so that's how it ends up coming to be, is just this process of application and them inviting me over and me spending a few days here and having it be a good fit. The unique thing, completely aside, in case anybody's ever interested, is that the uh, the fellowship application process in the U.S. is also is a match system for us in orthopedics anyway. Uh, but in Canada, it's not, or at least not in Canada for spine fellowship. So I had to actually sign a contract and withdraw myself from the United States match for spine surgery to accept a position in Vancouver. Uh, uh, so that's kind of a very little intricacy of that to leave the country. I, uh, wasn't part of the U.S. match. I actually had to withdraw from it and then sign a sign a contract with the hospital in Canada to join, which I was more than happy to do. Uh, but it was just a little little intricacies as you go along in these processes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that didn't stop you from applying. Since not, was... not at all. Not at all. A <laughs> leap of faith. So, Mohammed, do you have any advice for our undergraduate Goldwater scholars who are also interested in medical school? Yeah, I think that uh, first, firstly, you know, being really certain that medicine is the career that you want, uh, you know, being really honest with yourself that uh, that's the path you want to walk down uh, is really, really important. Uh, making sure that the external pressures, the external stresses, expectations, preconceived notions, whatever they may be, 
are um, put aside for a moment and you really consider honestly that that's what you want to do because it's so easy to sort of think that that's your trajectory and just be on that treadmill, that pathway and not reflect too much on your decision and just sort of take the pre-med classes and apply and take the MCAT, et cetera. So I, I think that's really important is figuring out why it is that you want to be a physician and being really certain because it's a big decision and um, it's a really big decision. It's a long time you're going to spend. It's hard. It's expensive. And you really have to be honest with yourself. And I think they're, the best way to do that is to have experiences around doctors, really meaningful experiences around physicians, not necessarily residents or fellows, or, but really like people who are done. They're, tra they're done training. They're doing their jobs. Spend time around attending physicians um, and ask yourself, is this, can I see myself being this person? Maybe it's not a nephrologist. Maybe it's not an orthopedic surgeon. But just in the bigger sense, can I see myself coming to work every day taking care of people in some way. Is that what I really want to do? Do I really like that? You know, whether it's in the emergency department or the outpatient clinic or the surgery center, whatever it is, have that variety of experiences to see, is this what you really want to do? That's what it comes down to. At least what it came down, what it came down to for me was, do I really want to every day take care of people? And it was without a doubt, yes, but it was a really important sort of decision process for me. You need to have that patient contact you just need to have that sort of experience to decide, is that what you want? So obviously I'm going on and on about this because I think it's really important. I think a lot of people uh, may pursue this path for reasons that are not the right reasons. So being really honest with yourself. Once you have and you know that's what you want to do, uh, then just get a lot of advice from people. You know, uh, Talk to your pre-health advising people at school. Talk to medical students. Talk to residents. You know, talk to people who have been through the process. Talk to admissions deans, whatever it is to get a sense of, am I, am I okay? Am I in good shape to apply? Uh, you know, there's just the reality of it. There's medical schools competitive to get into in, this, uh, in the US. Uh, are my MCAT scores competitive? Are my GPA okay? Have I met the prerequisites? All this kind of stuff. Have a realistic uh, look at yourself with people who know, not your classmates, they don't know, mm -hmm. uh, but people who really do this for like, they do admissions, have been through this, people who can really give you good advice so that you can prepare yourself accordingly, whether that means applying to more schools, uh, taking the MCAT again, uh, you know, doing something else for a little while, you know, maybe it's you really do want to go to medical school, and you've had the experiences, but uh, it doesn't come across on paper. Um, you know, people may doubt uh, that you've had enough patient contact to have made that decision meaningfully. So, you know, have somebody review your application and say, you know, I don't really see much of the patient contact in this uh, application to suggest that you really won't, that you've proven that you really know what you're getting yourself into. So just have people take a look and give you honest opinions and not just say like, yeah, you're all set, you're, you should be good. Cause that's not helpful to you either. You need people who are gonna be honest with you and say, yeah, you're, you're good, you're super competitive. You should be able to apply to where you want to or say, no, you need to retake the MCAT or to consider taking some more, whatever it might be. Uh, so just be really honest with yourself and apply very widely. I think um, it's very competitive. You shouldn't, yeah, nobody yeah. should look at it. Medical school is a guaranteed thing. You should make sure that you apply very, very broadly. Be willing to go outside of your comfort zone. If you're from the West Coast, don't, don't just apply to West Coast schools. If you're from the East Coast, don't just apply to East Coast schools. Uh, look at it as a time to really broaden your horizons and apply very widely. At least you can apply very widely, Get get hopefully get plenty of interviews and then narrow it at that point. Or get plenty of interviews, go on them, hopefully get some admissions offers and then decide at that point. Uh, the nice thing about medical school applications is it's not a match process. Like you get to hopefully 
collect a few admissions and then decide if you're lucky. You know, hopefully you're lucky enough to get into one medical school, hopefully a few, but to limit yourself at the application stage never seemed very smart to me. Uh, it is expensive, and I fully recognize that applying to medical school is expensive, interviewing is expensive, um, and I think there are programs out there to help people with that, but I think that it's also important to realize it is an investment, and whatever you can do to sort of uh, put the money forward for that investment, I think it's very worthwhile, rather than having to go through the process again and again, hopefully not. Yeah, it, I mean, I think you touched a lot of important points there. It, yeah. it is incredibly competitive and expensive. Um, yeah. How many schools would you recommend a student apply to? Oh, wow. Uh, is there, you know, is there a, a minimum? It's been a long time since I've been through this. Uh, I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to answer that question. I think there are people have different circumstances in life. So while it's easy for me to say, apply to 50 schools, apply to 30 schools, apply to 70 schools, uh, there's a cost. Wow. And then for some people, that might not be realistic. What if you're, you know, you're have a significant other, you're married or, uh, for whatever reason, you have to be in a certain hundred mile area. Uh, I get that. And so everybody's situations in life are different. Uh, I think you have to look at your own situation and say, okay, if you're a single gal or guy and you have no geographic restrictions and you're willing to go everywhere, you know, sort of like I was, then yeah, if you're like me, then apply to as many schools as you can afford to, as you're interested in. Sure, apply to 30 schools and see where the interviews come from and then decide. Uh, if you can't do that, if you know you have to be in the between somewhere between Maryland and Florida, then I guess look at those 10, 15, how many schools there are, and then say like, hey, yeah. okay, I put my money to applying to those schools. But yeah, I think you got to look at your own life circumstances. But if you if if you don't have anything tying you to a particular area or to a particular number of schools, then I would really encourage you to apply as broadly as possible. And whether that number for you is 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, I think that's individual. But I think anytime you're thinking of, maybe I should apply to that school, I think you should. And anytime you're thinking of, should I apply to more? If you're thinking about it, go for it. Uh, because you don't want to, I, I don't think you should close yourself off at that stage. Uh, choose not to go on the interview or choose not to accept the offer of admission, hopefully. But I think to not apply, is, uh, you'll regret that if you don't have as many interview offers at the end of the application cycle as you would have liked. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. that's really one way to look at it. Yeah, better to be safe than sorry, I guess. Correct. And uh, and uh, again, recognizing the financial limitations and the geographic limitations that people have, I think it's still, you had to look at your own circumstances. But then if you can broaden your application scope, I would definitely do that as best as you can. So let's talk about your time at the Harvard Combined Orthopedic Surgery Program. Because sure. I, I see that you've done some non-funded research activities. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about those experiences? The majority of my research is not funded, <laughs> as, as clinical research in surgical fields tends to be. Uh, so, you know, uh, the majority of my research is clinical research. Um, and that's sort of my interest in broad strokes is clinical research, although not, not exclusively. And so a lot of clinical research is, you know, the stuff that you do early on in your life is level four, as we say, retrospective cohorts, case series, things like that. So for a lot of surgeons, the question start off, starts off with uh, trying to correlate two things. What are the risk factors for the thing that I'm seeing? What, what kinds of my patients ends up with, end up with this complication or that complication? You're looking for things to correlate. So a lot of it is looking back at charts to try to figure out the answers to the questions that you're interested in. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, most of my interest was in orthopedic oncology. 
So I did a lot of research looking at questions affecting patients with tumors. So some of the work I did was, well, you know, comparing patients who underwent, let's say, for spine tumors, radiation versus radiation and surgery. Uh, we know that or we think that doing surgery might lead to better outcomes from a cancer perspective. You take out a tumor, it might work a little bit better in terms of their overall outcomes in terms of survival compared to radiation. However, you know, having that kind of a big surgery is a big insult to the body. It's hard to recover from. It's a lot to ask of a person. Radiation is frankly easier for the surgeon, uh, for, the, for the physician and for the patient. And these are people maybe with limited life expectancy. So you have to ask yourself, what is the quality of life for somebody who undergoes a sort of big procedure? Yeah, you can say I cured you of cancer, but was it worth it for you in terms of your quality of life if you no longer have control of your bowel and bladder functions, things like that? So we looked at that and we found, you know, that's one of the things we were interested in is what is the quality of life? And we found the quality of life of patients who undergo these surgical procedures to be reasonably okay. But the results don't matter so much. You know, I don't think that's what we need to get into. It's so much, it's more so the process of thinking about that kind of research. You ask yourself, maybe you've got treatment A and treatment B, and what's, what's the better way of approaching a problem? So that's a lot of the, sort of the research that I did if centered around cancer. So that's one example. Another example might be, uh, you know, I've got somebody with metastatic disease to their thigh bone. Do I do a simple procedure, you know, scrape it out and put a rod in it? Or do I cut out the cancer and replace it with a hip replacement? You know, those sorts of things. What, which kinds of patients do better? Uh, which kinds of patients live longer, get out of the hospital sooner, uh, need less surgery down the road? So those are the sorts of questions that I spent a lot of time uh, looking at. And then later so on, to, yeah, go ahead. So, so to tackle those questions, yeah. are you... Um, scouring the literature for similar patients? Or are you looking at um, statistical data? Yeah, a lot of the work that I've done is looking at our own patients. Uh, so we have the privilege, we had the privilege at Harvard of having taken care of a lot of these patients. So a lot of it's retrospective case reviews. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of learning how I can mine the data of our own institution. If I say, okay, I'm interested in patients with renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer, with metastatic bone disease, sort of learning the process of how do I find all the patients in the last 15 years at Mass General Hospital with that issue. So a lot of it's just learning how to do that kind of research, just like hey, you might learn how to do basic science wet experiments, the methodology of PCR and all those kinds of stuff. Mm. There's a methodology to clinical research as well, which is how do I learn the ICD codes, diagnosis codes, how do I learn the CPT codes or the procedure codes and perform intelligent searches in the medical record system to find those patients and then go through their charts and realize, well, that didn't really fit. I'm looking, that patient didn't really fit. So a lot of it was spending time doing that kind of stuff, uh, figuring out how to get an Excel spreadsheet with maybe far too many patients than I wanted with this, <laughs> with this problem and then going through their charts being like, yeah, that didn't really fit. That didn't really fit. That didn't really fit. And then finding the hundred patients out of those thousands that actually fit wow. my session criteria say, okay, now that I've got these 100 patients, now i got to go through their charts and figure out what am I interested in? Am I interested in whether how long they lived, how long they were in the hospital, how many blood transfusions they needed, and sort of just creating an intelligent spreadsheet, uh, looking at all this sort of stuff. So uh, like a lab notebook might be, our sort of clinical research uh, spreadsheet is sort of the equivalent of that. And uh, then taking those variables and learning statistics and things like that. So, so do all physicians go through... So do all physicians conduct this sort of translational research or is this just surgeons? Uh, no, I think uh, clinical research is a domain of 
all physicians. It's a fundamental part of our medical education. Uh, you know, it's part of medical school. It's part of our licensing examinations. At the very least, learning what the different types of clinical studies are, uh, what the different types of biases are in these studies, what the different levels of evidence are, how to interpret studies. That's all a very fundamental part of uh, undergraduate medical education. And then it continues in graduate medical education and um, residency. Uh, so yeah, I think that's not the domain of surgeons alone. That's every physician uh, should know, if not how to conduct research, at least how to interpret clinical research and how to integrate that into their practice. Uh, but probably, I, I think that it's probably the most common type of research carried out by physicians is uh, uh, clinical research on patient outcomes uh, in a retrospective fashion. It's probably the most common thing that we do. Yeah, my, my ignorance is showing. I had no idea that was a thing that all physicians had the capability of doing. It's, yeah, it's no, very it's, cool. No, it's very important. I think it's very important. And it's not, again, it's not what we're taught in college a lot of the time. Some people have experience, exposure to it. I have a lot of exposure to it. But you're right. A lot of what we think of as research as college students is uh, the stuff in the lab with the white coat and uh, chemicals and beakers and things <laughs> like that. Uh, but there's also, you know, uh, clinical research, which is looking back at patients, uh, looking at their outcomes, their risk factors, things like that. And that's just a fundamental part of being a doctor to know how the treatments that you're providing for your patients are working or not working. So. Okay, Mohammed, just a few more questions. Sure. Um, let's let's go back to your undergraduate education. Sure. Uh, how did you end up choosing sociology and chemistry, and um, where do you? Does that knowledge play out in your life now, or can yeah, you talk exactly. a bit about that? So I uh, I fell in love with chemistry probably in high school. I think maybe like many people, it was just a good teacher and a good environment. Like I loved chemistry in high school. My honors chemistry teacher, my AP chemistry. I remember her name. I remember her face. I remember like the little things she taught us. You know, it just it was an, it was a very early love for that particular science, and so I went to college and I was like, yeah, this is it. I want to be a chemistry person, and sure enough, it can, that, that love continued. So that was my interest. I really wanted to be a, a chemistry person going into college, um, but then you know there was also this this uh, I, I didn't want to be like I'm the pre med science person, so uh, I had the the luxury of having a lot of AP credits. I remember, and so. You know, I didn't necessarily need to fill my entire schedule of chemistry classes. I had a lot of credits coming from high school. Always and, nice. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, too many, frankly. And so, <laughs> I was like, I got to do something else with my time. I want to do something else with my time. That's not just science, you know. So, uh, you know, I took classes in economics. I took a lot of classes in culinary arts, actually. I got a culinary arts certificate. So I was oh, really wow. cooking. Uh, a sociology. You do it all. I did. I tried to do as much as I could, really, in those four years. I took a class like on film, like motion picture history. I did a lot of these like classes, and then I, I took an intro to sociology course my freshman year of college, I think it was. And I met a professor, and he was he was great. And it's kind of like this teacher that I had in high school. He just really got a small group of people really excited, and I got really excited just talking talking to him in class. And then I used to go to his office hours. I remember as a freshman, I'd be like, hey, I just thought it was really interesting. This how you were talking about like uh, minority groups in the U.S. and how they face different problems that I may not never have thought about having grown up in a different climate than Richmond and then uh, having not had the experience of different sorts of minority groups in the U.S. I mean, this is an example, uh, just the way that he sort of weighs awareness in me of the different sorts of experience that different groups of people face and just having those conversations with him. And then he was really supportive of me. He was like, yeah, it's really great to see somebody who's 
interested in hard sciences also sort of be so drawn to social scientific stuff as well. So it was really that one experience with him probably that led me towards being, let me take another class. Let me take another class. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of uh, developed into an entire major. And then it developed into a thesis and social scientific <laughs> wow. research. And like, I was just as proud of my social scientific, uh, my sociology thesis as I was of my, you know, electrochemistry thesis uh -huh. at the college. And so uh, I, I really liked it. And it, it gave context to what I was doing because, you know, I like the science. I like the hard stuff. But like I said, I really fell in love with taking care of people and being around people and understanding what the circumstances of the hardships and the disease, diseases they face in life is. What is the context of their life? And sociology provided an academic framework for me for understanding the social context of people's lives, to put it like in a far too intellectual and fancy word way. And, uh, and it gave me a way to study it and to do it intellectually and academically and get credit for it. And so I really, I really enjoyed that. And so uh, I, I went with it. And that's sort of how I fell into both uh, chemistry and sociology. In terms of if I use that on a daily basis, uh, I mean, use is kind of a weird word. I guess when you're in college, you think about that. Like, how do I use my degree? Uh, you know, like I don't sit there and think about, you know, acid-based physiology like on a daily basis. But... I do look at people's blood gases, I guess, and think about their pH, <laughs> not knowing that you did in college. Uh, so in that sense, I use my chemistry degree in the sense that I need to know basic chemistry to understand stuff. But you're right. It's not, it's not the sort of, it, it, it's interesting. You think like I need to understand like these equations that I balance or math problems <laughs> that I do are somehow going to make me a better doctor. I mean, they're Balancing important. a redox reaction. Yeah, exactly. Like I love doing that stuff at the back of the day. And it's important that you do because... If you don't, then you don't really understand how things work. Anyway, this is too much of a soapbox. But no, I don't, I don't, do I use, I probably in some ways I use my sociology degree more so in the sense that I think about every day when I'm meeting a new patient with cancer, and that's my clinical interest. I don't just think about the disease and how am I going to get it out and what chemotherapy am I going to give them or am I going to work with a medical oncologist to give them, but much more so it's like, who is this person? Like he's a father of two adult sons, he's a husband. He's going to have to take a year off from work. Do they have money saved up? Where are they going to live? He's got stairs in his house. How is he going to walk up them afterwards? I mean, that's that's really, those are really the conversations I have with people. I had it yesterday at the bedside with the patient. I mean, that it was really important. It's really important to understand sort of the framework and the social context of, of people's disease and suffering. Um, and that's an extreme example, but it's no different than, you know, uh, what most orthopedists deal with, which is, you know, the kid who slid into home uh, plate and tore his ACL, you know, for that kid, everything in life revolves around him playing baseball. And maybe it's a high, maybe it's a college scholarship for him. And it's, it's important for us as doctors to think about not just reconstructing the ACL, but also, uh, you know, what it means for him to miss a season of baseball if he's depending on that recruiter getting him a college scholarship. So in those ways, you know, uh, it's not so much the degree and the academic parts of it, but just sort of understanding that people are more than just um, a complex set of physiology. But the sociology part of it was really very satisfying for me to study and now apply every day and talking to and understanding the people that I get to take care of. Yeah, I, I feel great about your patience. That, that <laughs> bringing that worldly perspective must be really... It's very um, sensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Mohammed. Last question. Sure. Uh, with being such an awesome person, how do you handle work-life balance? Do you have any? Does it exist? 
It totally exists. And it's really, really important. I spend a lot of time telling people things like this. In fact, it's usually the people who don't, who were really interested in surgery and then don't want to become surgeons because they think they're going to not have any work-life balance. And, you know, I, work-life balance is all a matter of how you define it. But, uh, you know, for me, I'll be honest, when I was in college and I was in medical school, early in residency, for me, it was all, you know, work-life balance, work equals life for me. Like, that's what I want. Like, I really want to be a surgeon. I risk what I want to do. So I completely dove into it. And that's what I, I spent all of my time either, you know, not all of my time, but I spent a lot of time studying and a lot of time then in the hospital. Um, but, uh, you know, work-life balance means different things, I think, the further along you get in life. Maybe earlier it means keeping up with your friends, um, you know, playing the sports you're interested in, keeping up with whatever activities or hobbies you're interested in. And I think, you know, throughout uh, medical school, I certainly got that message from my mentors, my teachers, my professors, my classmates, that it's really important to whatever it is that makes you happy, whether it's playing golf or traveling or hiking, whatever it is that makes you interesting and who you were. And the reason that you got into medical school was because not just because you're smart, but because there's something about you that made you an interesting person. Uh, don't give that up. So I heard that message from throughout medical education. So I think that very much is in the conscious and awareness of medical educators, that it's an intense process, but it shouldn't consume your entire life. So that I, that's something people should really know. Like there's definitely these stereotypes out there, uh, but you can and you should, and you're encouraged to maintain some degree of balance. And then in residency, things are different. You know, you don't have control of your life anymore. Your working hours people dictate, and it's the same thing. You got to figure out how are we going to use those few hours that you do have to maintain the things that make that are important to you. You know, maybe it is that you don't get to go to the gym every day of the week, or you don't get to travel. One, you know, whatever it is, but whenever you do have that free time, you figure out what's important to you and you harness that time. And for me, you know, the, honestly, the important, the most important experience for me was meeting my wife in residency. She was my co-resident actually. And she provided all of the context that I realized I needed to think of life as not just being the best surgeon, but also uh, being uh, in love with my best friend. And so that really helped me have a reason to leave the hospital at the end of the day. Cause I loved it. You know, when you're early on, it's really exciting, like reducing fractures, putting on splints, doing surgery. That's the stuff that make, made me excited. Mid twenties, late twenties. That's what got me excited until I met and fell in love with her. And then I was like, that makes me really excited, but so does spending time with Kristen. And so I, and you know, her being a surgeon as well, it was really a really cool experience. Cause we both kind of came to that realization together. We love surgery. We love work. We also really love spending time with each other. And so together we're like, we, you know, I wow. think we might, we might actually like spending time with each other maybe a little bit more than working. And so together, uh, that's sort of my most like important work life balance transition in life was meeting her, uh, getting engaged and getting married uh, was sort of realizing that there's more to life than patient care. And uh, in fact, I think of myself as a better physician and a better surgeon, better able to relate to my patients because that's what people really are. They don't spend all their time at work. They have a family and a life to go home to. And having my own wife now, I sort of, I completely understand that. And I think I'm better able to relate to my patients and all that. So yes, you can get married in residency. Yes, you can get, you can have kids in residency. Uh, all these things are possible and doable and not, they're not just possible and doable, they're happening. They're absolutely happening, and you should not let those be reasons to not go to medical school or be a surgeon 
if that's what you, if that's what it is that you want to do. Uh, so I very, very much like to emphasize that point. If you're a woman who wants to be a, a physician, a surgeon, and you're thinking about how are we going to have a family, totally doable, absolutely doable. Uh, and same thing if you're a guy, if you're concerned about the same things, like how am I going to meet somebody, get married, have a family? And is that possible in my 20s if I go to medical school? And said, absolutely, it is possible. You have to find the right people, the right mentors, the right medical school, the right residency that will support you. Uh, but it is totally doable. And the stereotype of surgeons not being able to do those things should absolutely not exist. And uh, you should do whatever it is that makes you happy. Wow. Well, on that happy note, Mohammed, it's been yeah. really good chatting with you. I, I really like the advice you gave and um, really great way to end it. I'm still I'm still just touched by your, your story and um, yeah. how well. Um, thank you again so much for um, sharing your experiences with the Goldwater Scholar community, I'm sure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for I'm sure a lot of our scholars are really gonna like hearing your experience, and um, it's 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 been a pleasure speaking with you. It's a privilege, and I, I should mention everybody. Anybody should feel free to get in touch with me anytime. Obviously, uh, our lives are busy, but uh, it's also I, I also certainly remember uh, every stage of my life and my training and coming across a few people along that way who helped. And it's important to me to be one of those people to help other people now. So absolutely, anybody who's listening should feel free to reach out to me by email or however you can get in touch with me, because uh, I'm happy to speak to anybody and help in any way that I can in your lives. Oh, thank you, Mohammed. No problem. Okay, well, we'll close out the show now. Sweet. For, for our scholars who are tuning in, um, again, you can keep up with this Goldwater Scholar Highlight Show through our podcast that's available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or Google Play. And you can keep up with our Goldwater social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening today. And we'll be speaking with you soon with our next guest on the show.